Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, conditions that describe the United States for the past 600 years for people of color. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in Oakland, California. And I am Vahisha Hassan, and I am based in Memphis, Tennessee. This is our fourth week of Lent. This is a time when Christians journey with Jesus toward his execution by the state, aided and abetted by religious leaders on Good Friday. We recognize that Jesus is still being crucified daily in black and brown bodies. That's why we are dedicating this Lenten season to thinking together about how we can dismantle white supremacy. Each week, we'll be gathering a different group of theologians, writers, movement activists, and thinkers to discuss the lectionary scriptures with that text in mind. Welcome to the conversation. Today, we are joined by several contributors to the Lenten devotional, Recipicents. If we can have each one of you give your name and where you are based in the world. Tanya? My name is Tanya Bryan, and I am in Hackensack, New Jersey. And Steve? My name is Steve Sellers, and I am in Mooresville, North Carolina. My name is Regina Simpson, and I am based out of the DMV, the Washington, D.C. area. Hi, I'm Diane Malone, and I'm based in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Daniel Rushing, and I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the lectionary for Sunday, March 11th. going to take this time exploring together. I'm going to read some brief excerpts from uh, your, your offering. And after that, we would love to hear your feedback on or your, your, um, your take on what inspired you to write this expression, as well as how this presents for you in the world and anything that you want to share with any of the listeners. So we're going to start with Miss Tanya. And she wrote on Numbers 21, the 21st chapter, 4 through 9, and it's entitled Chant, March, and Repeat. I'm going to begin at the part where she's talking about the text, and she says, the text says the people were discouraged, but the original Hebrew translation is interpreted as the soul of the people. As were theirs, our souls are tired. Our inner being gets tired and weary of the struggle as we fight to stay woke and resist. For our efforts against racial indignations require action. You go into the the snake aspects and says, although bitten by the venomous snakes, we did not all die. 
The children of Israel confessed their sins to Moses. Today we confess that we fell asleep on the injustices of the past and became vulnerable to the new Jim Crow. We were awakened by the snake bites. And she, you repeat over and over again the, the chant, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, with a K. We chant, repeat, we march, repeat. How long? Not long. So we wait, we resist, we march, we chant. And you closed with, we chant, we march. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. We resist, we dismantle, we love. So Tanya, if you would give us your, your inspiration that led you to, to express in the way that you did and what you would have folks to know about where you come from. And so um, this year I participated in the Minister's March um, that was organized by the National Action Network and some few a few other partners. Um, and that was done on the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. And so those same chants that they chanted um, during the 60s is what we're still chanting today. Um, and so that was my thought behind bringing that in as I read numbers and just kind of sat in that text and sat with that test text i kept hearing it over and over and over again um and then getting into the text we are in a sense reliving the past we are reliving the 60s we are reliving jim crow we're no longer being lynched by ropes now we're using guns as i even spoke mm -hmm. to um within my writing I spoke to the, the identity now of the KKK. So they're not as easily identifiable because they're no longer with the white sheets and burning crosses on your front lawn. They're sitting in boardrooms making decisions. They're legislators that we voted for because they're no longer cloaked. So they're not as easily to be identified. And what happens is, because some legislations were put in place and you know, we're no longer segregated, in a sense, we fell asleep because we began to get comfortable in that space. And we said, you know what, it's okay. We're, you know, in a sense, there's equal pay. We're allowed to share bathrooms. We're allowed to um, a right to education and to access different resources and to be included, even be included in some of the boardrooms. And so for me, in a sense, we fell asleep. But in the mm -hmm. text, when Moses is talking about the people being bitten by the venomous snakes, we were bitten when Trayvon Martin was murdered. We were bitten when Mike Brown was murdered. And what happened, we all came together again collectively with the same chance, and we fell asleep because mm -hmm. we thought everything was better in a sense. And so that's what really um, spoke to me when I was um, writing this, because I, in a sense, we are reliving those times, even though we, you know, celebrated, you know, crossing over, you know, the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the movie Selma was out. Again, in mm -hmm. a sense, we 
embraced our history, but we fell asleep because in a sense we felt the fight was over and the fight isn't over. And with 45 in office, we've all now become alarmed and we're putting our armor back on. Absolutely. And, and then in the text when Moses talks about, when God instructs Moses to create this bronze snake and lift it up, the people who set their sights on the snake, those who looked up to the snake were healed from the bites of the snake. And so what happens, we have a lot of our foremothers and forefathers who fought in the struggle, who were assassinated. There are still some remnants. And for me, those remnants were those who looked up to the, to the bronze snake and continue to live and who are alive today and continuing to fight in the struggle for justices, for equality, and for dismantling white supremacy, which now that 45 is in office, it's blatant, but it's not the first time in our history that we've been there, that we've been in this place. Um, some of us did not live through those times, but it's not the first time in the history of people of color to be in this place. And so, you know, we continue to march. We continue to chant. We continue to, you know, we repeat it. Um, we have the Women's March. It's not the first time that women marched. When we look right. at the 60s, you know, at the early feminist movement, um, and then different branches of the feminist movement, having, you know, uh, the Mujerista, um, the, uh, you know, Black feminists, and, you know, in the, um, in the realm now of the Christian faith there, and, and Black women, there is a womanist movement. And so we keep moving and we keep gathering and convening and talking about um, the ills of the world, but we cannot fall asleep. And so just a, this text for me was just a reminder to stay woke. The snakes are going to come and the snakes are going to bite, but everybody is not going to die. And we have mm. to keep our, pride, our eye on the prize, which is Jesus Christ, from where I we just, our strength. You just get me too excited, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> you just get me too excited. I, I think I also... Because, you know, Nicola and I went through and really poured through each, each uh, submission and we've read all of them and, and mold on them so much. You have said so much of what has come out and that fallen asleep and the steel in terms of we are still in this place. Um, over the weekend, I was at this conference and uh, Bernice King, uh, the daughter of um, Martin and Coretta, she reminded me of this quote and she said her mom said, that that freedom is is not is not one and that every generation has to earn this freedom and this is exactly what's happening the not falling asleep and the the forgetting thank you thank you so much so next we're going to have steve sellers steve uh wrote on um interpretation of ephesians 2 1 through 10 and it's entitled it's personal and i I know Steve from Gardner Webb. We went to seminary together. And listen, this this is a personal brother. Now the people can't see you, so they don't know that that in that love, brother, you're 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 one of my my white brothers, but brother nonetheless. <laughs> and and he and he is so personal. And and I think um, even reading this, it just reminded me so much of who you are. I read that I'm resonated with and would love for you to expound on 
You said Jesus exemplified a powerful response. And concerned about individuals at the heart of movement and revolution. His love teachings, miracles and signs and salvation were for individual people. Condemned for adultery, the woman at the well, the thief on the cross, his disciples, little children, the man born blind, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, etc. Many poignant gospel moments are about Jesus and an individual. While mindful of institutions, Jesus also thinks personally. As we assign people to groups, over and washes their feet. Mm. Up stones. Jesus says, the sinless one among you go first, throw the stone, from John 8 and 7. This is hard teaching and may be that which caused many disciples to fall away from Jesus in John 6. Solutions to complicated issues like this are not easy to implement as they are vast and deep. We'll bring about systemic change in racism. That's me, I'm pointing to me, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and others will be the kingdom for and with others. I'm going to say that again. Some of us will bring about systemic change in racism, while others will be the kingdom for and with others. Much like yeast in dough and a mustard seed, I seek to bring these type of interpersonal changes in a Christ-like manner, small things that expand outward to create kingdom emergence and reconciliation. Goodness gracious, talk to us about that, Steve. <laughs> well, first of all, it is great to see you and to talk to you. God, I miss you, girl. I miss you. Girl. <laughs> and, you know, I like, like what you said and how you, you drew it to yourself and me. That's very true. I, I am your yang to your ying. Mm -hmm. You take a very systemic approach, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it is not my giftedness. My giftedness is in reconciliation with individuals uh, in small groups far more than, than large expressions uh, for this. Uh, and, you know, it is very difficult to read through the Gospels, I think, and not pick, on how personal, pick up on how personal Jesus was. Absolutely. I don't know how he did it. Now, now I know far deeper why he spent so much time in the Mount of Olives by himself. He was worn out. And that, that fully <laughs> humanized. Yes, yes. That fully human piece got slap worn out uh, from mm -hmm. all the interactions. You know, he, he pulled away from large groups after he had his say because he needed to breather. Um, and that's true for me as well. Um, I think when it comes to issues like white supremacy, um, I find that it is easy to, to marginalize and hate groups. Uh, once you start categorizing people, especially on superficial levels, uh, it is so easy then to use those categories to generalize who they are um, and what they mean. And, and more times than not, unfortunately, how little they mean. But when you get personal with people, it is far more difficult to allow those uh, bigotries and the hatred and the marginalizations to occur. Not that they don't occur, but I think it, it is more difficult. Um, it was interesting um, back in... Um, Back in the fall, uh, we did a class at our church on faith and racial reconciliation. And um, I had the opportunity to, 
to co-teach the class uh, with another minister in the community. Now, you know, I, I am a somewhere past middle age white man. So um, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere past. <laughs> okay. uh, and so at times I'm in the sweet spot of the group that's the problem. And I paired with a, Amen to that. Yep. I paired with a younger black minister. Uh, and as we prepared the class, um, and as open as I think I am, I brought assumptions to the table, good and bad about him. And it was real interesting. It was probably the second time that we had lunch. He finally looked at me and, and he said, brother, there are things you think I don't like that I do and things that you think I do like that I don't. And it made me realize that I wasn't personal enough with him. And once I got personal with him and we began to work through the text and the illustrations we were going to use, uh, we became gosh, almost entwined with each other uh, through this process. And so it was a very personal moment. And it was a chance for me to live out, you know, some of my philosophies, if you will, and theologies about this. Um, so you know, I, I think that it's important that we get very personal with people to, to work through some of these issues. Now, some of that's difficult because, as you said in the reading, it brings about slow change. And sometimes we don't even see it. And that's hard. I mean, we want to be reinforced for the things that are happening uh, and we want to see things happen, but that's not always how it gets done. Uh, and, you know, the yeast in the dough, I think is just such a great analogy because once you get that yeast in there, you're not paying attention to it anymore, but man, it's got to do its job. Uh, and I think that's where, where kind of I come in. The, the Ephesians passage was neat. As I read through all the passages uh, for this particular Sunday, that one spoke to me because I think it's foundational in where we have to start from. We are a conflicted people living in exile in a world that has not been consummated yet. Listen. So, I know there's this tension and this tension between, you know, and Paul says that I do what I don't want to do. I don't want to do what I should do and all these mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And, and, and so I think in any one moment, I would actually suggest that that tension is very much of a tightrope. Uh, we can fall on the what I should do side or what I shouldn't do side pretty easily. And part of what I mean by that is even when we're trying to do good, if our doing good, we think, can be bad for others, then maybe we have stepped a little too far. And so I think we're in this constant conflict. Um, you know, there, there's moments that we are the walking dead because we have left mm. Christ to the side and, and we're getting around. But, you know, we're meaningless and, and we're consuming those around us as the walking dead would do. But then when Christ comes in us, we're alive again uh, and we have we have impact and we have kingdom things that we can accomplish. Um, and I think it's important, at least for me, to say that that's all because of God's love and mercy. If it's not for that, then we're still walking dead and we're going to always be walking dead. And so for me, I try to reach within my own people group by trying to explain to them the concept of love and mercy, by trying to show them what it means to be personal with all kinds of people, and then to have them use that love and mercy to share with other people, because that's really all we've got uh, for me. And, and part of that derives from what I think is one of them, is a systemic problem uh, in racial reconciliation. And I, I think I, I mentioned in the devotional, we tried some pretty substantial select secular approaches to trying to resolve this issue. And it does not get resolved because we don't have the spiritual component in there. When we have 
prejudice against someone else from the body of Christ, that is sin. And until we admit that that sin is there and we resolve that within our own hearts, we're not going to get as far along with others as we need to. And I was listening to the week three podcast uh, that you guys did. And Zan West said something that was really poignant. She said, we should treat other people's bodies as temples, not just ours, but everybody else's. What we do for other people is a spiritual sacrifice, a sacred sacrifice for the kingdom. And I found that just to, that bowled me over. I had to stop. I had to go back and listen to that a couple more times because that's very powerful. So for me, and I, I think if we're really going to do justice to social justice, and if we're going to really be the body of Christ as it is meant to be, then it's really not about us knowing who we are. It's about us knowing who everybody else is in the body of Christ. I love that. I love the body, the body aspect, the temple. Zan has um, blown me away since I met her. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. A couple years ago at uh, Princeton's Black Theological Leadership Institute. And I just basically want to follow her around. And, and <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's that serious. I just, I, just, I just don't understand the magic that is that woman. Um, but yes, I agree. And I love that the way that you put it and that you have, you know who you are. You know where you are in this movement and the touch that you have. And I mean, you do have a as somewhere over middle age white man right <laughs> <laughs> this is a place in the world that you can voice things and say things and hear things and see things that a lot of us are not gonna be privy to and not we're not gonna be able to hold space in those places so if, if personal touches i appreciate your personal touches because coming from an institutional place it is people that hold mm-hmm. up oppressive systems Mm-hmm. institutions so if you can touch some of them people while well, i'm dismantling them systems and they stop holding them mm-hmm. up i'm all for that brother <laughs> and isn't that the way really change happens i mean sometimes yeah and it has yeah and it has to come from all kind of directions there That's is right. one road there is one road for change and i'm definitely not going to sit around arguing over which one is the right way how about you just get on one and go forward and be your best self in that space That's there you that. go. Now you're preaching. I like it. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So next, we're going to have some more preaching by our very own Minister Regina. (laughs) Regina Simpson. Uh, She also came from 2, 1 through 10. She wrote an amazing poetic expression called I Passed in the past tense with the ED on the end. Okay. Um, I'm going to read the top, just the top portion, and then just get into the theme that kind of goes from there. So she moves from uh, where she was to where she is and where she can be. Okay. It says, I've been brainwashed, caught up in this thing called freedom, caught up in this thing called justice. As I view this world from a deep place, deep in the bowels of oppression. I've been brainwashed, caught up in this thing called civil rights, caught up in this so-called thing called equality, defined by the oppressor, following the way of the world instead of pursuing life. I've been brainwashed. 
I followed the notion the pilgrims opened doors to the new land. Instead, they brought illness and disease to the true owners of this land. I've been brainwashed to believe our ancestors' fight guaranteed our right, the right to oppression, the right to pain. From deep in the bowels of oppression, pain became our best friend as we live our lives damaged, damaged by unbelief, damaged by disobedience, damaged by death, damaged by genocide. She then moves from, I've been brainwashed. Let me do the last one, I'm sorry. I've been brainwashed just like an America who blames their children without admitting their own errors. The oppressed became the oppressor without admitting their contribution to the addiction. The addiction of being afraid. The addiction to power. She then moves from being brainwashed to these I am statements. And we talk about the, the I am that I am, but she finds that I am in herself and she goes from I am free, I am worthy, I am forgiven, I am kept, I am alive, together in Christ, I am. All right, Regina, I am, tell us where you came from, what led you to share this, this journey with all of us. Good afternoon. What led me on this journey was as I was studying the Ephesians text and being a seminary student, we're taught to go dig into it and find out what was going on during the time that it happened. I recognize that the first 10 verses of the second chapter of Ephesians is divided into three main segments. Verses one through three focuses on the hopeless condition of humanity as a result of sin. Verses four through six focuses on God's grace and mercy. And finally, verses 7 through 10 focuses on the purpose of salvation and praise for God's grace. And as I was drawn to this text, I reflected on my past. That's spelled P-A-S-T, the good, the bad, the ugly. Some of my past choices were made as a result of brainwashing. Brainwashing, as I shared in that litany, brainwashing to believe the things of the past that caused oppression and caused pain. And I allowed it to become my best friend. I allowed it to become yeah. that friend that never leaves me. I know we talk about, you know, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you, but you know, that pain, that oppression became my best friend because everything that I did was based on incorrect information. Many of us do not realize the assumptions and presuppositions that have become a part of our DNA is based on alternative facts. Mm. As Steve just mentioned, mm. we don't come to the table empty-handed. We mm. must recognize that to be the body of Christ, we are meant to be not only for us to be who we're supposed to be, we first have to know who we are. And that was powerful, Steve, and thank you for that. But in addition to knowing who we are, we also have to know who other people are. And in order to genuinely know who someone is, we have to develop a relationship and recognize the alternative facts of both our past and theirs. But the good news is the story doesn't end there, and that's where this litany continues. This, though the text reminds me of my past, P-A-S-T, it declares that I have passed, P-A-S-S-E-D. I've passed from that place rooted and grounded in oppression and misinformation to my rightful place together in Christ. As it says, together in Christ, I am no longer following the way of the world. Together in Christ, I am destroying the concept of inferiority. Together in Christ, I am free. I'm free from those fleshly pleasures that destroy and oppress. 
together in Christ, we have all been raised up from the bowels of oppression to heavenly places beyond the oppression. So I passed, and now I am. You better be. Listen. Yes. You better be, Miss Ma'am. I am... I can feel that in every way. I think all of us can take some inventory in this journey that you're describing and going from the P-A-S-T to the P-A-S-S-E-D, the past to the past. Oh, and what a journey. And, and right, you and Steve and just the, the forgetting and um, Tanya and not keeping account of not just how we come to the table, but what we bring to the table, both in our in our values and our great things, but our baggage and our oppression. And I think when you started it for me, um, being another black woman, when you repeat it over and over, deep in the bowels of oppression, and when your perspective comes from a low place, um, deep in, in something that you can't seem to, to, to change or to fix, and your perspective is, is from there, how do you function in that world? How do you even become an agent of change in that space? And yeah, I appreciate And that. as it showed, we have to first recognize that we're there. Yes. Because I being one who was raised um, by a mother who, um, I was born in 68. I don't have a problem telling my age. I was born in 68. So in the middle of the civil rights movement, my mom was active in moving things forward in the educational environment. So I got to experience some of the benefits and all those things that they told me that we're supposed to be striving for, what we're looking for, living in the neighborhoods where I can go to school with people who don't look like me and it's okay. But I still did not recognize that there were so many people around me that indirectly and directly, they shared things with me that were oppressive and they became a part of my DNA. It became, I had limits. I had limits that I wasn't supposed to have, but those were the limits that the oppressor had put on us. And now we continue to turn around and give that and, and do the same thing to someone else. To so someone we first else. have to rec recognize the oppression so that we're not mimicking it and we're not continuing the trend. Yeah, white supremacy shows up so uniquely mm -hmm. in, in, in everyone's place. So even to try to attempt to define it as one thing, White supremacy is in whiteness, but not, white supremacy is also in non-whiteness. And then how, how do we deal with that? So to your point, how do we recognize that we're deep in the bowels of oppression? That, that's, that's for the, the non-white in some way, right? Or even not just racialized, whatever the oppressive state may be. But then how do we not continue that forward and oppress other people? So well said, well said. Um, some of that, thank you. Some of that consciousness is continued with our very own Dr. Diane Malone. She came from Numbers 21, four through nine, and it's entitled, Lest We Forget. It begins with, it's obvious. God's chosen people have a penchant for amnesia. Remember the whole thing with the Red Sea, the quail, the manna from heaven, the fresh water from the rock, the cloud by day, the fire by night, the continuous pipeline of miracles God siphoned down to earth because he loved those folks so much. God did not do a clean, sweet victory as he done in times before. 
Instead, God told Moses to make a fiery serpent, bronze it, and place it on a pole for people to look upon when they were bitten. Only then would the afflicted person live. God did not take the serpents away. He gave the Israelites a way to live through their afflictions. He provided them something that would first heal, heal them, and second, keep them from forgetting about who delivered them. In other words, the weapons, or in this case, the serpents, continued to form, but the weapons, or bites, did not prosper. She closes with, the work of social change never ends. Strides are made, old standards are challenged, and slowly, with persistence, change comes. The cycle and sagas continue. It's the nature of the strive, the strive toward freedom and justice for all. By now, you would think the liberators, revolutionaries, the fist-up warriors for the cause of Christ should know that around the corner from a victory is yet another challenge. But the, but the way to get through the next challenge is to remember, celebrate, and honor the last victory. Then and only then will we be able to stave off the fiery serpents. But lest we forget, we should remember this, God provides. Each time we look, up, look upon God's way out for us, each time we look upon the cross, it should remind us of the Israelites, the fiery serpents, and God's provision for us through his son, Jesus Christ. In this Lenten season, remember, as we move among the fiery serpents with our fists up, we should look up and live while we help others live. Goodness and the graciousness. Dr. Malone, help us expound on this. Let's forget, since apparently we have amnesia. <laughs> um, so... This devotional came from a personal place <clears throat> because I found myself in a state of murmuring. Um, mm. It seemed as if each time um, I saw strides, the celebration of those strides were very short-lived um, because something else came around and constantly um, came around. So when you asked um, which passage I was going to choose to write on, uh, this one floated to the top uh, like cream because it addressed some personal things. Um, I thought to myself, you should know by now things will happen. You have to fall back, regroup, and look up for healing. Um, and so when I thought about the, the fiery serpents and uh, thought about the pain, the mental anguish, um, the heart pain, the physical pain um, that they imposed on the uh, Israelites, um, I thought to myself, some of the best revolution comes out of pain. Um, mm -hmm. Creativity comes out of pain. Um, critical thinking comes out of pain. Solutions come out of pain. Um, and unless we feel something, we won't move. So we have to be reminded to feel. We have to be reminded of where it stings. And then we have to be reminded where to look when it begins to sting so that we won't forget and so that we will keep moving toward progress. Um, so as I was writing this, I was really um, in a place of being ministered to uh, through the words of God um, and then ministering to other people because it's really easy to want to give up 
um, and it's yeah. really easy to want to fall back um, because um, it seems as if when other challenges rear their ugly heads, um, we will forget that a few strides were made. We have to celebrate those because God gave them to us um, and they are miracles. Um, and it hurt to get to those miracles. Um, but there's always a place where you can get a balm and a salve to put over that, mm -hmm. that scar um, or that open wound. Um, and we have to keep remembering that as soon as our fists start to shake and our fingers start to spread apart and we start to feel disconnected and um, unhinged, there is something there up that we should look to, to help to kind of bring things back together. And that's what I was trying to get to uh, through this devotional, um, just knowing there's healing uh, in the place of Christ. Um, and we have to reach up to it, grab it and hold on, keep those fists, uh, you know, ready for action and, and keep moving forward. And I, I appreciate that so much because I, I think also in continuation of Regina's, you know, we're recognizing that we're in these bowels of oppression. So what happens when we do win something? A win happens, but we're still technically in the bowels, right? Or we, we moved up one rung from the deep valley. We in, you know, in parking lot, parking lots, they got P1, P2. So we're not in P1, but we like, we still in P3, but it's still the bowels. Like, what are you, we're in the bowels three. But, but a win happened, a victory happened. And um, I think some of the, uh, us, I'm going to just be inclusive of us, stay woke people are so quick to, to, to go right back to what, why, why are you celebrating this? This is still broken. This is still broken. This is still a problem. This, these people over here don't have this and these, and I don't have this and, and we don't, cause guess what? We still in the bowels, but we just won. <laughs> so I think there should be room. There needs to be room. We need to make room. We need to honor victories that happen. We need to to take those times and recognize that God was in that victory. So remembering the God in the victory will get us to that next victory. Um, so uh, I can't remember who started it, but some folks on, face on Facebook have started to say, some of these walk people need to take a nap <laughs> in the sense of when, when there should be pockets of time and space made for celebration. For sharing the this very personal place of what that meant to you, but also recognizing, man, we had to get bit. Like we still did get bit. We are. We can look at the bite. The fact that we can look at the bite and somebody ain't just looking at us talking about the bite. Like we're here to to strive and thrive. You're well done. You definitely got the personal perspective cross, and I hope that people can can find themselves in that. Next, we're going to have, oh, my Daniel, another Gardner Webb, another Gardner Webb um, alumni with me. Just, just yes. really, really great, great person. Also very personal. Maybe they just got a whole bunch of personal people. Maybe the year we came in, it was like, oh, we need all the personal people this time. Um, <laughs> That's right. It, it, it yeah. went downhill since then. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, I won't tell. I won't tell the rest of you. I'm playing. I'm playing. <laughs> You know, everybody I'm went. Um, so Daniel came from John 3, 14 through 21. It's entitled God's Love Language. I just like the start of that. Um, you know, we have like our love languages and we're so quick to examine ourselves. Let's look at the love of God. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. He, so if this is about midway, um, 
And it says the war on black and brown bodies has waged in our country since the first settlers landed on these shores. From the genocide of native peoples and the institution of slavery to the modern state of police violence and the prison industrial complex, there has never been a ceasefire. For those pushed in the darkness by the wickedness of white supremacy, there has never been any doubts of this fact. Yet for those of us privileged enough to sit in the warm glow of whiteness and American exceptionalism, doubts and even denial abound. Sadly, the denial is astounding when given the many times the light of God's love and justice has revealed it, but the privilege and exceptionalism was warmer and more comfortable for us. This is why God's actions of revelation are both loving and incriminating. Says the God, the light of God's love is still shining. If there is any hope of experiencing the kind of world John imagined Jesus came to create, then we need to be born with new eyes to see what it shows us. For many of us, we, we saw it first when it shined on George Zimmerman's 911 call as he stalked, stalked and murdered Trayvon Martin. For others, it took the images of Michael Brown's body lying dead in the streets. Then there was Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Agdiel Sanchez, Belendo Castile, and the list goes on. God's light cannot help but shine, and it shines most on things the privileged least like to see. Closes with exposure is God's love language. Mm. Well, dang. Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Speak to us on this narrative and exposure as God's love language in this space. Sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, I just want to say, you know, thank you for this opportunity. And, and I've just enjoyed the podcast previous to this and everyone who has spoken today. Just so much goodness and richness um, that this group is pulling away from the text. But um, Agreed. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, this passage, um, as I begin to read it over and over again, you really begin to... Um, let me say this, I really begin to identify um, with Nicodemus in the passage. And uh, I think for a lot of folks, especially uh, us white uh, males, um, Trayvon Martin was a big turning point for me. And, and, and uh, it, it, made me, it made me realize that maybe the world wasn't as I had been led to believe that it was. Um, mm that you know i i kind of grew up with that narrative of we're across that we're across that bridge of racism um we're across that bridge of systemic um kind of um state enforced and regulated um racism and, and white supremacy and then when the trayvon martin murder happened and i begin to see how um the privileged were um, kind of appealing to that narrative over and over again and trying to downplay what had happened there. Um, that, that was kind of the beginning of it for me. And then as, as more and more of these incidences came to light, which I believe was the work of the Spirit, I believe, um, I've said this many times, you've probably heard me say it, I think we're living in apocalyptic times. I think that in many ways the curtain is just being ripped off of some of this stuff. 
And I remember sitting in class one day with uh, our mentor, Dr. Larry George, and um, he said something that made me, it just really convicted me because he talked about that narrative. And he said what people fail to realize is that narrative says somehow or another we have solved the problem of racism, but the problem of racism was never solved. Um, racism as an evil is complex and um, and and it finds its way into every fabric of the society. And so we didn't solve anything. We just pushed it underground. It's still there. Um, it just went, it, it went into hiding only to manifest itself from time to time. And in the story of Nicodemus, you know, Nicodemus is seeking out God's salvation. But he comes by night. He comes alone. And there's kind of this sense that, um, he wants to talk to Jesus. He wants to experience the kind of salvation Jesus is talking about, but yet he doesn't want his peers to know. He, it doesn't seem like he wants to be public with it. You know, he wants to kind of do it. And, and in the chapter, the whole chapter of John 3, you move from this, you know, you have Nicodemus coming by night to Jesus ending the conversation talking about the light of God and how the light of God shines into the darkness to reveal these hidden deeds. Um, so for me, it was just a very personal kind of a, a identification with Nicodemus and kind of, kind of this reminder to me that we must be, uh, we must acknowledge the narratives that we have been fed and that we have been given and be willing to question them, even at the risk of losing our privilege, our friends, our, mm -hmm. you know, our standing or whatever. Because there are so many who are so afraid, really, to speak out against white supremacy, to speak out against the systemic ways in which we see um, white supremacy carried out in our society, because they feel like it would cost them too much of yes. that privilege and of that standing. And so for me, when, when I look at scripture, not just in John 3, I'm sorry. I said, because it will. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I, when I look at not only John 3, but throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit has this way of being a truth teller, even when we don't like it. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, every time I see uh, years ago, I remember there was a, I can't even remember now, but it was a big scandal with a big name minister who had, you know, fallen from grace and done something really really horrible. And somebody asked me, said, I just wish God would keep this stuff secret and not put it out there, you know, find a way for, for these, these people to be dealt with. So that doesn't look so bad on the rest of us, but that's not the way the Lord works. Um, God's light shines and it's redemptive and it's painful, but the spirit can't help but tell the truth. That's just that, that he is the spirit of truth. And sometimes the truth is very inconvenient. And sometimes mm. the truth challenges us. To, to step out of the things that keep us comfortable and privileged. And so that is where my reflections kind of emerged from. That is so well put, uh, Daniel, an inconvenient truth. And that inconvenient truth does challenge and that we, we love to look at God as being so shiny, but we don't want mm -hmm. to shine on our dark places. Like we just want you to right. be you know, make life shiny for us. Um, and so exposure, right. exposure is God's love language. And to say that it still, it still comes from a place of love. Conviction comes from a place of love. Mm -hmm. the, the, the push to do better, to be better, to, to love our neighbor, to figure out who our neighbor is, which is basically everybody. I mean, all, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it is inconvenient because it's much easier and simpler to to hold on to ourselves, to hold on to our privilege, to hold on to our security, to hold on to our comfort. Who is like racing to discomfort? You know. So mm-hmm, right, and I think yeah, and I I think we've kind of created a church culture where we want salvation and and even righteousness and justice to be convenient. Um, yes. But that's just that's just not the way that it's going to be. It, it will it will cause a great inconvenience for us. Um, and, and that's the way that it should be, because salvation is not just, you know, and I mentioned earlier in that in my in my reflection about how growing up, John 316 is kind of the locus of that whole passage. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think John 316 is really the locus of of the conversation. I think uh, the final few verses are actually you know, the locus where Jesus talks about um, the verdict of God, you know. And so for me, in many ways, this whole idea of a personal, only a personal salvation, which is what is so often talked about, at least in my world and in my circles of, of white evangelicalism, is that that's what we want, you know. And even I even here, sometimes at conferences, they talk about how to, how to give, um, how to spread the gospel and make it convenient for people to respond. And I'm just like, you know the the call to follow Jesus and yeah, no. and what that entails. It's 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 not very convenient and um and it's holistic and it's not just about the individual. It's about mm-hmm. everyone that that person comes in contact with. You and your whole household will be saved. You know. So um, I don't know. I think that I think that we need to challenge that narrative within our circles. And I'm speaking from white evangelicalism. We need to challenge that narrative and preach a gospel that is holistic um, and that doesn't just go from John 3.16, but goes from John 3.1 forward uh, through that whole conversation between Jesus and a privileged, um, a privileged Jew from Israel, you know, so. And I'm aware that that is being preached as you are now a new pastor at a church. And so if anybody. I am remotely close is it in charlotte specifically i know you're in yes yes we are in charlotte um yeah in the paul creek area we we meet uh in the uh on the campus of paul creek presbyterian but our church name is renovatus church so and the information's in the the devotional of course and he preaches all over twitter and facebook and everything so you can go (laughs) to this shiny inconvenient truth a lot and i follow all Mm -hmm. the things thank you thank you Mm -hmm. we're going to um we, yeah, thank you. We were joined by Tanil Power. Tanil, if you can introduce yourself uh, with your name and where you are based, and then I am going to read a, a, a short passage of yours. And if we can get your feedback in about five minutes of where you're coming from and your perspective on on your expression, and then we will close out. We can't quite hear you. You're still on mute. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, ma'am. Oh, there we go. I am yeah, so give, give us your um, full name, where you are. I'm Minister Tennille Power. I am from Chicago, Illinois, hailing from Trinity United Church of Christ. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you were able to get Tennille came from John 3 uh, as well, 14 through 21. And it's such a call. Her expression is called do better, God's people. So I think we got some challenging all the way, <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> um, she, she does come from John 3, but she pulls at some point um, just from Micah 
six eight, and which is talking about acting justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And she says, we are mandated by God to call out the sins of racism, sexism, heterosexism, xenophobia, classism, ageism, ableism, every form of oppression, and to walk in the light of equality and justice for all. The largest sin against God is not only working against justice, but being silent as you listen to the cries of God's people. We are called to move out of our places of privilege and become an intentional ally for the oppressed, not just a convenient friend. We are to move beyond charity from our checkbooks and move our feet to the pavement and be mouths to the ears of the world as we fight for a more just existence. When we refuse to fight for justice and stay settled in our privilege for the sake of comfort, please know God calls us to do better. Be empowered by the true living God and do not allow Jesus's blood shed on Calvary to be shed in vain and despair. Do better, my people. God is waiting. Can you tell us where, uh, how you were led to share this particular expression and anything else you would want to expound on for us to know about God's waiting? Because we clearly can do better. Yes. <laughs> um, the place that I, it was a very personal place for me. Um, it comes from a place of one where we are politically right now, where we are socially right now. Um, I push myself, uh, as a lot of people may know or may not know, I serve in a, in a predominantly African-American congregation. And oftentimes, we, we all have to be pushed in our levels of privilege because mm -hmm. um, all of us have them. It's just a matter of the circle that we happen to be in, <clears throat> a circle of privilege we happen to be in. And so looking at politi uh, politically where we are, we are in a place where it's definitely a us versus them. We are in a place where the, the have and the have nots are becoming very clear if they weren't already clear. Um, we are in a place where there, there is definite value placed on some lives versus others. Um, and it's ironic that now weeks later, we are, you know, in the wake of the Parkland uh, mass shooting. And if I can quote Reverend Tracy Blackman from this morning, she made a clear distinction between the Parkland shooting and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, because a lot of people are using rhetoric to mesh them both. And both are about saving lives and both are about um, protecting the lives of our youth. However, the, the point of departure is the color of the, of the skin. And Absolutely. so now our organizations and corporations are pulling out of the NRA and not supporting and not endorsing. But how many black lives did it take to, um, to be killed, to be dismantled, to be, you know, to be part of mass incarceration, and we stayed silent. The church, that the larger church, the universal church stayed silent, people stayed silent. When it comes to issues of heterosexism, how many times does the black church stay silent when we need to push and do better? You know, Absolutely. we get caught up in our, in our 
spaces of privilege, because again, we all have them, whether it's, you know, male versus female, or I identify as heterosexual and someone does not, you know, cisgender, non-cisgender, you know, it's, we have to identify where we are, and that's where we decide where the work begins. You know, all of us identify, and the difference or the critical piece to privilege and oppression is if I am in a level of privilege, what am I willing to give up? What am I willing to share so that that person in the parallel oppressed box can get leveled with me? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's a hard conversation to have. But as a church, we are mandated to do that. Micah 6 makes that very, very clear. And so we cannot in this season, like, you know, dogs or whosoever, and we are still yes. picking and choosing who those whosoever is. And so we have to be challenged with that. And we need to do better. You know, we've done great work. You know, as mentioned earlier, we have done some great work and we have made some strides, but we still need to do better. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you, all of you, so much for being a part of this conversation today. And by writing in, uh, recipients being part of a larger conversation and even steering narratives. Uh, where perhaps there is silence, where there is not challenge, where there is not celebratory in the winds, where there is not a voice speaking in spaces we can't reach, where we talk about where we woke up, what was our woke up place, where we come from. And I think that it's, 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 we all need to hear that everyone in one of these contexts said, this was personal to me. This was personal to me. And there was almost a, an inward reflection of figuring out where we were individually, so where, where, where we stood, where our heart was, our heart place, our mind place, and then we looked at our perspective, and then we figured out where to go from there. And it sounds like we've all gone through a very personal formation of identity, and that is amazing. Um, and, and we do all have some levels of points of privilege. And in this particular case, Points of privilege on some levels is education, just from the group that that is speaking right now, and just in the ways that I know all of you. So Diane and I work together at MCUT, which is an undergraduate theological setting, right, in in Memphis, Tennessee. And then I met um, Regina and Tanil and Tanya at Princeton Theological Seminary, right? But it was for um, a, a convening of, of black theologians to talk about these very, very issues. And then I met Steve and Daniel again in an upper education um, setting of Werner Webb. And so we, we have um, an educational, if nothing else, place of privilege and we have to own that. Um, but it sounds like also use that, right? Also use that to, to be our voices, figure out who we are and how we can be a part of dismantling because to all the themes of this, we have not yet arrived. <laughs> and so we need to not forget and we need to not um, succumb to our amnesia and keep working and do better and not, and not forget. So thank you. Thank you, all of us. Thank you.
is the part of the Word is Resistance podcasts where we call you, our listeners, to action. Our call to action will remain the same for the full season of Lent. We're asking you to learn about the present-day state-sanctioned killing of black and brown people by law enforcement, corrections officers, and vigilantes. And we're further asking you to take action to end it. We'll link to a full set of educational resources and action ideas in the transcript. Truly, thank you so much for joining us this week. As always, the transcript of this episode is available on the Surge website. That's S-U-R-J website. And it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of resources to support your action. Next week, we'll be joined by another set of amazing on-the-ground theologians. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss not one episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song in our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. And I am Vahisha Hassan. 